Let's get our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Actually, just for context, we'll start in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse uh, 28. And then we'll read through chapter 13, verse... Um, I don't know. We'll stop when we stop. How about that? All right. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what, what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured. For, we for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good or to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Alright. So just for context, I want to remind you that what we're studying in Hebrews chapter 13 is what is acceptable worship in reverence in awe. And so... One of the things I want you to be careful of, Melinda mentioned it to me when, when we come in. She said that she found herself this week talking about things like uh, when she would see that she questioned everything. Is this acceptable worship? Is this acceptable worship? And, and it was almost, if I heard her correctly, it was almost like 
it was very tempting to get into a state of, oh my goodness, if I'm not pleasing to God, then... And so, what I want you to be careful of is understanding that when we're talking about offering to God acceptable worship in reverence and awe, or like Sunday when I was talking about um, uh, living a life that is proper and in character with the Christian, we're still not talking about works, about a works-based salvation. We're still talking about a faith-based salvation. But remember, the works are the evidence of genuine faith. The works are the evidence of a heart that says, I believe God. I trust God. And so what we want to, want to do is live a life that we're looking for the evidence of that works. And if we don't see it, if we see things that are improper, that are out of character, they are meant to make us stand in awe of God and in a sense tremble, but to the sense that it turns us back to Him. It's a healthy fear of God. You understand that? It is a, it is a understanding that whenever I recognize that I'm not living the way that I'm supposed to live, my heart and the Holy Spirit inside of me jumps up and says, Oh no, <laughs> this is not where I'm supposed to be. So there's a fine line between that kind of living and the kind of living that's just always worried that I'm, I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not saved. And I'm not saying that's where she was at. But so, do you see the difference in what I'm trying to say? Um, we, we're not living a life that, that we're always worried that maybe my faith is not genuine. The only time I think we should ever question about whether or not we're in the faith or not is when we are constantly living in unrepentant sin. Constantly. To the point that we are Christians by name, but our life is so out of character and so improper, there's a problem. Any other time, we ought to just be looking at our lives and evaluating to make sure that we are offering up to God acceptable worship. And if for some reason we see that something in our life is not pleasing unto God, then as Christians, the only thing that is, is the Holy Spirit and our heart telling us, turn around, <laughs> turn around. Let's put this off and let's put this on, just like we've been talking about. But we still live a life full of assurance of faith. Because remember the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Faith is the full assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. And so we, we're, we're not talking about always questioning whether or not we're saved. Again, the only time you should question that is whenever your life is so out of character that, that there's, there's nothing about being a child of God in it then there were to be every reason. That's the reason why Hebrews was written. He was afraid. He was seeing some of those people doing these things. He saw some symptoms that he didn't like, and so he addressed them. That's the reason why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I believe it was at the end of it, where he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. The reason he said that was because he told them, I'm afraid I'm going to come to you and find you such as I do not wish that you haven't repented from things like sexual immorality, and, and he goes on and on and on. But that was the reason why he said, you ought to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Because the evidence speaks otherwise. So faith without works is what? Dead faith. 
So again, we want to be like James. We want to be able to examine our life and see that the evidence of our lifestyle says, yes, we really do believe what we say we believe. We do believe the wrath of God is coming. We do believe that, that He has called us out of the darkness into the light. We do believe that Jesus is the light of the world and we're following Him and His ways. And the evidence of it will be a life lived out in sacrifice that is acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So, we studied last week that in order for us to see some of these things, one of the things that he says in chapter 13 verse 1 is brotherly love or to continue, not stop. Genuine faith that has acceptable worship is going to continue in brotherly love. We're not just going to quit loving the brethren, right? But that was one thing that he was seeing stopping in this church. And I could take you back. I'm not going to re-preach last week's message. But he saw that at one time you were serving the saints, you were loving the saints, and God is not unjust to forget it. But we got to make sure that brotherly love continues. It has to keep on because if not, then there's not acceptable worship. All right, And then he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That was another thing that apparently he had been seeing some neglecting take place. And because of that, he says, don't do that because thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And I believe there he draws us back to the Old Testament to where we can be reminded that people have actually entertained angels in the past by showing hospitality to strangers that were just passing by. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison as those as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. There I would call your attention back to Hebrews chapter 10. You remember what he told them? He said, recall the former times when you were first enlightened and you suffered hard trials with many sufferings. You had compassion on those who were in prison and those who were reproached and sometimes even being partners with those that were so treated. And so he's reminding them here to keep on doing what you started doing when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And these were some of the evidences in their life that actually proved that their faith was genuine. genuine, And it was acceptable worship with reverence and all. And then verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. So marriage at one time was very honorable to these Christians. And it was held in... What does it mean? Well, y'all remember last week when we looked at the Strongs? What does that Strongs mean when he says to be held in honor? Y'all remember what it meant? High esteemed. Highly valued. It was precious. In other words, it, marriage had begun to be in this congregation something that was not really a big deal anymore. It was something that was easily wrote off and, and not really looked at as held in high honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? For God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. That's a pretty good motivation to do this, right? Verse 5, Keep your life... And this is where we left off last week. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, can anybody think of any... Now, here's where 
you want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You remember I've always told you that's one of the keys to really interpreting Scripture. This is another place where Bible Hub will come in handy tonight, and I can show you how to use that tool to look at reference Scriptures so that you can see other places that, um, uh, that this same theme, if you will, is discussed. But can you think of anywhere in, in Hebrews to where maybe, maybe they weren't content with, with where they were in, in life as a Christian? What was happening to them? Y'all remember? What was happening to their things, to their, to their money, to their worldly stuff? That's exactly right. They were being plundered. And how many of you know that probably a bunch of them were quitting the faith as a result of this? They were probably saying, man, before we become Christians, everything was pretty good. <laughs> now we've lost our money. Some of us lost our houses. We've lost our things. And so now here's this author comes in. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. And so... Pretty hard to be content with that, wouldn't you say? Unless you have something else to make you content. So he says very plainly to him, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? What is it that, what is it that they have to have in order to find contentment in not having things of this world? All right. What does the verse say? Be content with what you have. Why? So here's the thing. If there are two reasons to be content here. The first reason is because of what He has said. Notice what it says there. Be content with what you have. Why? Because He has said. So in other words, God has... God Himself has said something. And He has said something that is the cure for you losing your contentment whenever your goods are being plundered or when you're having to suffer for your faith. And so what is the promise of God that you have to have faith in? What has God said that you have to trust and believe if you're going to be content with things with what you have in this world? In other words, what is he saying? Y'all tell me. What's, what's, what's he saying there? That's exactly right. I will always be there. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You may be homeless on the side of the road. God is not promising you that you're, that, that you're always going to have a place to lay your head in this world, is He? He's not. But what He is promising you is this. I'll never leave you. I will always be with you. And that's a pretty important promise. Now, again, here's the reason I said there's two reasons to believe. I said the first reason is because of what He said. That's the first reason. Number two is because of what we believe. Those two reasons to be content. Because of what He said and because of what we believe. Now, here's what we believe if we're, if we're trusting what He said. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. starting in verse 13. We'll just go through this quickly because we've already studied it. And again, I don't want to go back and re-preach everything. But notice what it is. Here's what we can, we can believe about what God said. 
For when God made a promise to Abraham... So God spoke something to Abraham, right? Since he had no one greater by whom to to swear, he swore by himself, saying... And here's how God swore by himself. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's God swearing by His own self. Surely. In other words, all God had to say was, hey, I'll do this. But instead He said, you can, you can take this to the bank, Abraham. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Keep going. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So there, you remember, what do you, what happens, or I don't even know if they do it anymore, but when you get on a stand, um, Tammy and Susie and Jeff, uh, when you get on a witness stand, do you still have to put your hand on a Bible or anything like that? So, used to though, you had to put your hand on the Word of God, right? And you had to do what? I swear to... So, so the point being is that In order for you to make someone believe you, (laughs) men have to swear by something greater than themselves, right? Now today, as they said, apparently all you have to do is just raise your right hand and say, I swear to tell the truth. Now, what, how that works in making anybody believe you anymore, I don't know. (laughs) But, The point being is that you swear by something greater. And so listen to what he says. People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, I promise, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And from that point on, there's no more dispute, right? As far as we're concerned, what he's supposed to be telling is the truth. Alright? Now, keep going. Now that's man. Alright? This way man works. Verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So here are the two unchangeable things. Number one, it's impossible for God to lie. Number two, He swore. He made an oath. So you got two things there to back up that whatever God says, guess what? It's going to happen. You can take it to the bank. And so the reason He did that is so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So when you go back to Hebrews chapter 13, we have a steadfast and a sure anchor for being content in this world, no matter what we have, and keeping our lives free from such a love of money that it causes us to walk away from faith when money's gone. Because one of the parables, or one of the sowers, uh, the seeds in the parable of the sower, whenever he threw the seed, one of them landed on the, the thorny ground. And the thorns grew up 
and choked out the Word. And when Jesus explained it, you remember what He said the thorns represented? The cares and the riches of this world choked it out. And so this is something that we're concerned about here. Keeping your life free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? Because He has said. He said it. And if He said it, it's impossible for Him to lie, and He guarantees it with an oath. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so, because of His promise and because of what we believe, what does verse 6 say? So we can confidently say, here's what we can say, because this is what David said, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man what can man do to me what can what can these people who come to plunder their property do to them what can these people who throw them in jail do to them if the lord is with them and he'll never leave them never now what does never mean <laughs> that's good that's good that's awesome webster right there never I will never leave you. Even even if they kill the body, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Alright. So, verse 7. So remember your leaders, those who spoke the word to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now what does it mean to remember something? Recall. Think back on, right? Here, what you're going to see is he's talking about past leaders. These leaders have gone on. And he says to them, you need to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith, of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And so, one of the things that he's just trying to get across to them right here, because remember, you're trying to stay in the train of thought of this author. What's his number one concern? What is, not, what is Hebrews... What is the theme of it all about? Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't go backwards. Don't neglect this great salvation. Keep pursuing. Keep going. Stay in the race. Don't quit. That's his concern, right? And he's seeing things that showing them that they're beginning to walk away from the original gospel. They're beginning to neglect the salvation. And he's seeing these things and he's addressing them all the way through the book. And so he says to them here, remember your leaders. Think back on the ones who originally spoke the Word of God to you when you first got saved. Think back to the first gospel that you believed in, that you were saved in. Remember those leaders, those who spoke the Word of God. And consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
So what we see in that right there is very plainly the fact that the gospel has not changed. Now we fall into these new teachings and we start going different ways and we see the church today that, that's always trying to find a new way, right? Always trying to find a new way to worship, a new way to, to interpret the Bible, a new way for, for everything. And it always leads astray. I, I saw um, a post the other day and it said, do you know what the one thing is that um, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, um, it named off so many religions. And you know what the one thing is, uh, Buddhists, um, Islam, you know what the one thing is that they all have in common? <laughs> yeah? Huh? False prophets. The one thing they all have in common is that every one of them began with a man saying, God spoke to me. Every one of them. Muhammad with the book of Islam, or with the book, um, the, the Quran, thank you. Um, the Jehovah's Witness and the Watchtower, uh, the Mormons and the Book of Mormon, uh, any cult that's ever started, any new way has always been somebody that stood up and said, God spoke to me. And people just took it and said, God spoke to him. And they followed. And they followed. And here he's saying, you need to go back and you need to remember the original gospel, the original teaching of Jesus Christ that you were saved in and consider the outcome of their the teacher's way of life and imitate their faith. And notice, what does he say in verse 8? This is the reason why he says this. He does not change. He does not change, guys. That's the reason why He put this verse in there. Jesus Christ, in other words, the gospel does not change as you get older in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was then, it was yesterday, when your old teachers that you need to remember taught it to you, it is today, it hasn't changed, and it will not change forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ will always be the same because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, because of that, what does verse 9 tell you to do? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It's pretty simple, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes, sir. Fourteen. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
That's another reason why the Bible is our sole source of authority and our sole guide in all of our Christian life. There is no greater authority and no greater power than the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who brings all of it to remembrance to us. All right? But this is a reason why, one of the reasons why we are Protestants uh, uh, protest the Catholic faith is because they believe in the authority of Scripture, but they believe it is equal to two other things. It is equal to the Pope. In other words, whatever the Pope says, the Pope can stand up and say, God spoke to me this, and it can contradict this Word completely and yet it has equal authority. So the Pope can stand up like he did not too many years ago and say, from this time to this time, I am going to allow forgiveness for abortion from this time to this time. Do any of y'all remember that? Does that mean that that's how forgiveness is going to come to anybody who had an abortion? No. Forgiveness comes only one way and not through the authority of the Pope. That's one thing. Another thing is the tradition of the church. So in other words, if, if um, in, a, in the Catholic faith, if the church has a particular tradition that they have fell into that contradicts the Word of God, completely contradicts it. For, things, for instance, things like indulgences, paying for your sins, um, uh, and that's just one of many. But if the tradition of the church is something that they do and it's contrary to Scripture, it holds equal authority. That's a problem. <laughs> that's a bad problem. Because as I just told you before, one of the ways that every false religion has ever started is there was some false prophet that stood up and said, God spoke to me and it contradicted this. This is your sole authority. There is no other authority, there is no other authority in your life other than the living and active and powerful Word of God. If it's not said it here, God didn't say it. I don't care who stands up and says, and we had that happen here a bunch of times. Somebody will stand up and say, God told me, and I believe for the most part they're probably well-meaning. They're well-meaning, but let me explain something to you. If it does not line up with this, God did not tell you. That's right. That's right. And that and what? Yeah, and what the and the word uh, correctly interpreted. That's right. All right. Let's move on to verse. Um, so, verse nine. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So again, our context, who's the audience he's writing to? Jews, right? And so somebody interpret this verse for me based on that context. Verse 9, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And here's what they were being led away by. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So how were they getting their strength and their faith? 
through the foods they were eating or not eating. In other words, by following Jewish dietary laws. Well, some of it, uh, of course, was. but And it could have been. If, if we were talking about a Greek-speaking audience, then yeah, more than likely. But being a Jewish, Jewish audience, I would say that this is just a group of people that they're following the Jewish laws, they're drifting back into Judaism, and they're not being strengthened in faith by grace of God and by trusting in the sacrifice of Christ and Christ alone, the finished work of Jesus. That's not where they're getting their strength. Where they get their strength and their encouragement is in following the Jewish law. And so here he says, don't be led away like you are by these strange and diverse teachings. That's not the way you learned Christ when you first came to Him. And now you're going back into these diverse and strange teachings. And so in their context, this is the way it applies to them. In our context, on on the other hand, how would diverse and strange teachings apply to us? What kind of diverse and strange teachings can we be led away by? All right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? <laughs> I like that. Yeah, live your best life now. There you go. Okay. Well, and if it's not taught correctly, absolutely. If it's not taught correctly, yes. And it could have been because we do know from First John that that's what he was dealing with in his, um, and so it very well could be the same thing here. Yeah. But the point being is that Jesus is the same. So remember the original gospel you believe, the one that was taught from the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And you trust that and you consider their way of life. Imitate their faith. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings because it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food. In other words, if your heart's going to be strengthened by anything, it's strengthened by the grace of God and that alone. I'm not right with God because of what I eat or don't eat. I'm not right with God because of where I succeed or where I fail. I'm right with God because Christ Jesus has saved me by His finished work on the cross. I trust it, I believe it, and now I'm going to follow my life after it. And when I see that I'm not, I repent and I turn back and I get back to Him. I think... I think here's what he's saying. They're diverse and strange because that's not the Jesus Christ that's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So it's diverse and strange to Christianity, not to Judaism. That's right. That's right. That's that's correct. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where you kind of have to put your shoe, your feet in the shoes of this audience and think of how they would have heard this. And that's what they would have heard. It's not that it's diverse and strange to that individual. It's diverse and strange because this is not the Christian faith. This is not what you were originally taught. This is If you're remembering 
the teachers that taught you, this is not what you learned from Jesus. Same thing Paul said in Ephesians where he said, assuming you have learned from Christ and heard from Him because the truth is in Jesus. So this is not what you learned. Alright? So it's diverse and strange. With their Christian faith. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. So we need to be strengthened in our heart by the grace of Christ in the gospel of Jesus, right? The gospel that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not by what we abstain from or not abstain from or do or don't do. And that's where they were trying to go back to. So, since we're talking about foods that have been sacrificed or not sacrificed, verse 10, he says, we have, talking about Christianity, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now this is where some... I'm going to open up Bible Hub here so that you can see this. Verse 10... And you probably can't see it because y'all are back row Baptists, most of y'all back there. But um, <clears throat> but anyway, what we're seeing here is that... So let's just try to break the verse down first and foremost. So he says here, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What was it? Who were the ones that served in the tent or the tabernacle? The priests, correct? And they were there to do what? Make the offerings, the animal sacrifices. Some of them they were to eat from. Some of them they weren't. Does anybody remember which sacrifice it was that they were not to eat? The sin sacrifice, the sin offering. And what was it that they were supposed to do to the sin offering? So they couldn't eat it. That's right. So, and you can look back at that. Actually, let me go to the next scripture here, uh, verse 11, and look at these cross references on the right side of the screen. So, Exodus chapter 29, verse 14, this is what it says. But burn the flesh of the bull and its hide and the dung, or in this case, it's talking about the intestines, outside the camp, it is a sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 12. All the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp, in other words, everything but the blood, he must take outside the camp to a ceremonially clean place where the ashes are poured out, and there he must burn it on a wood fire on the ash heap. Leviticus 4 verse 21. Then he is to take the bull outside the camp and burn it. Just as he burned the first bull, it is the sin offering for the assembly. And they had one for the assembly, one for the leaders and the laymen in the congregation. That's the reason the difference there. Leviticus chapter 9 verse 11. But he burned up the flesh and the hide outside the camp. And then we'll stop at this one. Leviticus 16 verse 27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp 
and their hides, flesh, and the dung must be burned up. So there again, a Jew would have known this context. This is where we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture and where a place, an app like Bible Hub comes in handy because when you pull it up, it lays out the cross-references out beside of you right there. And you look at that verse and you can see that when he talks about... Let me go back to that verse. Um, verse 13, 10 and 11. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We know those who serve the tent are the priests. All right, They can't eat and we a Jew would have known the only sacrifice that they couldn't eat was the sin offering. And the sin offering had to be took outside of the camp and burned completely until it was ashes. It had to be completely destroyed. And then he explains why in verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So there it says plainly, here's why they can't eat from the altar that we can eat from. They can't eat from it because the sin offering they did had to be took outside the camp and it was burned. It represented something that was to come. All right? But then when you go to verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. So here He just compares and He helps him understand. The same way that sin offering had to be took outside and completely destroyed, guess where Jesus was took? Outside the camp. He was not in Jerusalem. He was took outside to the hill of Calvary And that's where, according to verse 12, He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. So verse 13, here's the conclusion of it. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He he endured. So, you have Jesus. The original altar... They couldn't eat from it. All they could do was go through the motion as an act of faith of this is what God is going to do. We have an altar that our sin sacrifice is made on and guess what we get to do? We eat from it. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, what? You have no part of me. We eat from the sacrifice that was given. Spiritually, of course, and physically by faith in the Lord's Supper. But the fact of the matter is, we in Christianity have an altar of the sin sacrifice that we get to eat from. The people that served in the tent, they couldn't eat from it. So, let us leave the camp, leave Judaism, that's what he's talking about, Let us leave the the priesthood that can't eat from it and let us go outside the camp to Him. So basically, here's all He's saying. Let us leave that and go to Jesus. Quit trying to go back to the altar that you can't even eat from, to foods and, 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 and eating from that don't benefit the person that eats from them at all, but instead be strengthened by grace as we go outside the camp to Jesus. 
And so he's just talking about leaving Judaism right there. And then in verse twelve or verse thirteen, therefore let us go out, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So again, we're going back to the main theme of it. Don't quit. I know you're having to bear reproach, but guess who else had to bear reproach? Jesus did. Bear reproach to the point that he got carried by the Jews outside of the camp and sacrificed. So let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured. And then here's why we do that in verse 14. The first word is what? For. Here's why we should do that. Because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, here's another place where the Bible Hub comes in. In verse 14, let's look at some of the Scriptures that we can use to interpret this. So, um, and we could go through all of them, but one of the ones I want to look at is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, knowing that you yourselves had a what? Better and a permanent possession. So again, here he's just going back to them saying, listen, the Jews have a city. Right now, they have a a city. But is it a lasting city? No, it's not. So don't get caught up in the earthly Judaism and the earthly city because it's not lasting. We need to go to Jesus outside of the camp because that's where the better and the abiding, the permanent possession is at. Keep going to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10. This is talking about um, Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's faith. That's faith. He ain't, try, he ain't worried about this temporary city. He's focused on this eternal city. Hebrews 11 verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 12 verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to myriads of angels. So what Jerusalem have you come to? The heavenly Jerusalem. So again, here's when we go back to interpret the Scripture. Let's read it again. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're going to Jesus outside the gate because we're not worried about what we have here and now. We'll bear the reproach that He, that he endured. Because our focus is not on this city that's not a lasting city. Our focus is on a heavenly Jerusalem. Our focus is on a better and abiding and a permanent possession. Our focus is on for the city whose architect and builder is God. Alright? Verse 15. So through Him, through who? Who are we going outside of the gate to? Christ. So through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 
Ultimately, there's only one sacrifice left for you and I to give. And it ain't an animal sacrifice. Christians only have one sacrifice left to give. And you know what that sacrifice is? It's a sacrifice of praise. But it's a sacrifice of praise. Notice what it says right here. Let me get back to it. Through Him then, or through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that do what? Give thanks to His name. That acknowledge His name. Literally, our last sacrifice that we have to give is just the sacrifice that acknowledges that Jesus paid it all. And it's the sacrifice of praise that continuously acknowledges that there is nothing left to do. What more could I offer than what Jesus has already offered? Is there anything else left to give? So, we offer up continually the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there he just sums it up. This is the summary of a life well lived, a life of worship that um, in reverence and all that's acceptable. Here's it, here's it summed up. Don't neglect to do good. <laughs> if it's good, do it. You know what? Uh, I think it was Paul that said it in Galatians maybe. I can't remember. He said, Therefore, to him who knows to do... is James. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. It's very simple. What you're learning from Jesus, what you know is good, what you know is right, do it. Do it. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. So... Show hospitality, uh, let brotherly love continue, all this stuff summed up, share what you have, for such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. So there we have acceptable worship, acceptable um, reverence and all unto God. Then we get into our benediction, if you will. And next week we're going to talk about benedictions and we're going to look at... Um, at benedictions. We're going to talk about the difference in prayer, doxologies, and benedictions because you see these in a lot of them. You know, like for instance, you've heard me pray a lot of times from Numbers chapter 6, I believe it is, where uh, I'll be praying and I'll just say something like, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And all that is is a benediction. It is a blessing of God spoken over the people in which God has already said this is what He is going to do. And ultimately, it is, a, it is just a spoken blessing to say, God, do this for your people. This is what you said you would do. Do this for your people. And so we're going to look at what a benediction is and uh, what a doxology is and what a prayer is. And we're probably going to see a little bit of all of these in this uh, last little bit. So is there any questions about acceptable worship 
in reverence and awe. Don't neglect to do good. Share what you have. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We don't have to have a list of do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. Just learn from Jesus. When you know something is good and right, do it. Don't neglect it. And God will be well pleased with you. That's right. That's right. And again, use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That was one of the main things I wanted to get across to you tonight. When, you, um, when you're studying, make sure you're studying in context first. Do your homework. If you get to a Scripture, you pick up your Bible one day, and you just start reading a Scripture, and you go, I got no clue what this is saying. Stop. Do your background. Who's the author? Who's he writing to? What's the book about? Um, and then, what's a little bit of context before the verse? What's a little bit of context after the verse? How can I see this verse fitting in what this author is trying to do? And then use Scripture to interpret Scripture. One tool that you can use that's helpful in that, something as simple as Bible Hub. There's also another one. I mean, there's several out there. I mean, this is not the only one. This just happens to be the one that I use. I like it. I'm familiar with it. Uh, Blue Letter Bible. That's another one. If you've never looked up that one, it's another good tool that has um, commentaries and reference verses and Strong's Concordance and um, all types of ways to, um, to study your Word. But if you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, you are more likely going to come out with the correct interpretation and not be led astray by various and strange teachings. That's right. Yeah, right there on the right side of the screen. Once you get past the reference, cross-references right there on the right side, and then you go up, you get to the treasury of Scripture. That's right. Yeah. Right. Well, you're try I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach in such a way that when you leave, you can go home and start doing some of it yourself, so that you don't just depend on Nick and I to to for you to hear from God, but you can hear from God yourself. God don't just speak to Nick and I. Speaks to all of us. Do I? All right. Well, thank you all so much for your time and your attention. And um, like I said, go home this week and look, look up doxologies in the Bible. Look for different doxologies. Look for different benedictions. Uh, if you'll notice, um, your Bible may do it um, in... Um, if you have a heading in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, what's your heading say? 
benediction. And so there's all types of benedictions, and benedictions were very common. There's probably one in pretty much every, every book and every letter. And so they were very common, and it's not something we do a lot of today, but um, it was very important for um, closing letters for them. And I'd like to look at the difference in them and look at some different uh, benedictions and some different doxologies in the Word of God and so that you can pick them out when you're studying. You can see what they are, what their purpose was for, what the author was doing. <clears throat> 